Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. All right, so we're going to be getting back into our study of Acts here this morning. In Acts chapter 8, I'll do a quick review so that we can remember exactly where we're at in the scene that has just unfolded. If you recall at the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, we read, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Where? In your hometown? In the comfort of your own neighborhood? No. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's how we began in our study of Acts. And And as we concluded two weeks ago our study in Acts chapter 7, we read in verse 54 through the end of the chapter, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Here we had the end of the account of the life of Stephen, a man who had such reputation, such a godly individual that he was recognized by those in the church at the time as one who fit the bill, if you will, to become a deacon, to be a servant within the church, someone that everyone trusted, someone that people saw within him a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And as we discussed in that particular study is that it It would be easy for us to see this life of Stephen, one who was so empowered by the Holy Spirit, one who was so recognized by those around him as a godly man. It would be easy for us to look at that and say, what a shame. What a shame that this life came to such a tragic end. Imagine the things that Stephen could have done. Imagine where he could have gone, the the impact that he could have had for the kingdom of God. Yet as we read at the end of the chapter, we read of one individual named Saul, And of course, we now know, and and while we won't get to that particular portion today, we will learn that Saul will become the Apostle Paul. And that through the testimony of Stephen, Stephen the first martyr, it would open the door for the gospel to go from Jerusalem into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that is, in fact, what this was about. As we read through our study of Acts, we learn of the foundation of the church, but that the church, praise God, did not stay within the city of Jerusalem. It was not the gospel. It was not just meant for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And as we transition into chapter 8 today, we'll begin to see how the gospel makes its way into Samaria and then beyond. And so if you would, just agree with me in prayer as we go to our word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks this morning for this day that you have given us, this day that you have blessed us with. And as we go to your word, Lord, I pray you'd give us understanding of it. And I pray that you would have already, through our time of praise and worship, through the power of your spirit, Lord, prepared our hearts and minds to receive today what you have for us. And I pray that as we receive that, Lord, as we go to your word, that we would be encouraged today, 
that we would be exhorted today, that we would be challenged, that we would not just leave here having experienced a brief time of fellowship, that we would have grown closer to you, having a greater understanding of your word and your will and your desire for our lives, that we would have a passion today as we read of Philip and how Philip takes the responsibility of taking the gospel into Samaria and begins to see revival happening in an area that many would not have expected that we could understand today that we can experience those same things, that we are called to that same work, that you have entrusted us to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that through the power of your Spirit, Lord, that we could see individuals come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a privilege that is. And I pray that we would understand that today, that that would resonate on our hearts and minds, that we would truly grasp the magnitude of the power of the Word of God and the fact that we get to be a part of this, that we get to be a part of this story, Lord. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And we ask, Lord, that you'd bless our study. In Jesus' name, amen. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So Saul here, we now start to transition in the book of Acts to the life of Saul, who we will know as Paul. And Really, the better part of this book, the latter part that we'll enter into here, uh, will really deal with Saul, his conversion, and the initial ministry that he is called to. We'll continue to read of Peter as well, but even some of the other apostles in this particular chapter will be the last mention of some of them. John in particular, of course, we'll have John's letters later on, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation, where we're at on Wednesday nights, but... This will be, in chapter 8, the last mention of the Apostle John. But Saul here, we know, had an incredible zeal for the law. Saul was educated under Gamaliel. He had a promising future as a Jewish leader. He was a devoted Pharisee. And this word consent, as it says in verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. It wasn't just that he consented to the death of Stephen. He delighted in it. The word consenting is really hard to say. Uh, soon you deco. Soon, I was practicing this last night. Ashley said, I don't know what you're saying right now. I said, neither do I. The statement, it's Greek to me, this is when it applies. Soon you dokeo. There we go. Got it out. And it means to think well of, in common with, to assent to, to feel gratified with, to allow, to be pleased, to have pleasure in. You see, he didn't just give permission for Stephen to be stoned. No, he took pleasure in it. He delighted in it. Saul took it as his service to God to persecute the church. The one who was so proud to be a Pharisee, who was so zealous for the law, who was so committed to Moses that he considered it his role, his job, his responsibility to persecute the church. And how much more now for Saul when he was, no doubt, I'm confident that he was pierced to the heart with the words of Stephen. 
having just heard what Stephen had to say, Stephen giving such a great testimony, taking these Jewish leaders all the way back to the foundations of their faith, drawing them in, causing them to agree with him. Yes, everything, Stephen, that you're saying makes sense. It aligns until the very end when he threw in that hook and brought in Jesus Christ once again. And and it says that they shut their ears. They gnashed their teeth. They ran him out and they killed him. But Paul heard, or Saul here, for his name has changed. He hears this and it pierces his heart. And so not only did he already consider it his aim, his mission, his responsibility to persecute the church, but now that conviction had set in in his own life, he wanted to silence it. And what better way than to attempt once and for all to shut down the church, to silence the church. But fortunately, when persecution comes against the church, it grows. Persecution to the church is like wind to the seed. It spreads. And that is exactly what began to happen in the early days of the church. And so it is so exciting for us and should. You know, some of you aren't much of a history buff. You never got too excited about history. You maybe wondered, why do we need to study history? Or maybe you began to have an appreciation of it because you began to understand, okay, it's important to know kind of where we came from. Sometimes history repeats itself, that type of thing. But for us, for the church, to know our history and to understand that here in chapter 8, we now start to see the gospel go forth from Jerusalem. We should be excited as those who are Gentiles sitting here today, knowing that because of these events, we are grafted in. That we get the opportunity to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because of what's happening here. And so here in the early days of the church, persecution is causing it to spread causing it to go forth. Because as Saul in particular goes into the houses, it says here that at the time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. They scattered. And it wasn't that they were all running for fear of their lives, but yes, they were getting away from the persecution. And I can say that, that they weren't all just running in fear and in hiding, because we hear that as they go, they preach the word. Yeah, so there's still boldness, there's still confidence, but they know, hey, we've got to get out of here. And they go throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And as for Saul in verse 3, he made havoc of the church. This word havoc is also translated as that of, of like a beast that tears apart its prey. You know, sometimes these words, they don't do it justice. I mean, havoc is one thing. That's a bad thing when we think of havoc. It sounds messy. But really to think of Paul going through these homes and tearing them apart. Now, was persecution God's will for the church? Well, God is sovereign. God does allow persecution. And he will allow in your life as well to stir you up, to move you into areas that perhaps you wouldn't have gone before because it was just too uncomfortable. Sometimes we need to be stirred up. Sometimes we need to be pushed a little. And I would ask you now as we really start to dig into this chapter is, are you being stirred? Are you being called to something more? Something that may be uncomfortable? If so, if the Lord is working in your life in that way, then you'd better listen. And you'd better be obedient because He has His ways of moving you into these areas like He did for the apostles and for the church at this time. It seems that many began to scatter throughout the land, except for the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the exact reasons for it, 
But it seems that the apostles were a bit more reluctant to move on and to go. Perhaps they saw it more as fleeing, that they didn't want to run from whatever that persecution was. That's very possible. I'm not trying to suggest that the apostles were in direct disobedience by remaining where they were. But at the same time, there may have been a reluctance on their part to go into some of these areas, to take the gospel to places that they would not have formerly gone, like Samaria, for example. But once again, the persecution prompted movement to happen that may not have happened otherwise. And Saul increased the intensity of the persecution, wreaking havoc, as I mentioned, mangling his prey like a beast, entering into every house, threatening lives in exchange for them denying Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That was his aim. You deny Jesus Christ, and if not, you'll be in prison and you may face death. Therefore, those, verse 4, who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And see, this is the beautiful thing that though, yes, they were looking to spare their lives getting out of that area, they didn't just go and run and hide in a cave or under a rock. They went preaching the word. And this was a beautiful thing as God moved them on because he was beginning to accomplish his plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And those who were scattered, when they went everywhere, as it said, preaching the word, This word here for preaching is what we get evangelize from. And the definition here of evangelize is to announce good news, especially the gospel. To declare it, to be glad, to share good tidings, to preach the gospel. And I mention that because I want each and every one of you to understand right now that, you see, it doesn't say anything about them departing from Jerusalem and going to pursue a master's of divinity degree in seminary. It doesn't say that they went and they took a seminar on the best three-point sermon that one could give. No, they fled. They fled into other areas, and along the way, they told people about Jesus. And I say that because I don't want any of you to feel like you're off the hook here. I'm not a preacher. I don't have the gift of teaching. This doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to you. This applies to every one of us that we should have such joy within our hearts, that we should be so excited about what God has done for us, that no matter where we go, we want to tell people about it. That we want to share with people about what Jesus has done in our lives. That's what it means to evangelize. Now listen, yes, you might want to be careful if you decide that you're going to go toe-to-toe with a devout atheist who knows the Bible front to back, and you say, oh, I'm going to debate this guy. You might want to be careful about that. You know, you might get into some doctrinal areas that stump you a little bit. But the reality is, no matter who you talk to, no matter who you go up against, per se, no matter who you encounter, they can't take away from you the experience you have with Jesus Christ. They can't deny what Jesus has done in your life. They can't say that the experiences that you've had, the relationship that you've developed, that it's false, that it didn't happen, because that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. And because you know him, you at least know the foundational truth of what he did for you. And that is what was happening here, as people were talking and sharing about Jesus. It was very simple. And sometimes we really get this confused in the church today. We overcomplicate things. When we think about making disciples of Christ, we think about all these extravagant programs that we have to put together in these 12-week series and this and that. And while all those things are great for us to grow in the knowledge of the Word of God, it's very simple. It's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they faithfully proclaimed this good news everywhere they went. And for us, 
We just have to tell people about Jesus. And so we see here now this individual named Philip. In verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And so we're introduced now to Philip. And Philip, you know, some of you may, through your study of the word, know who Philip is and recognize him. But you also may recall that name from the list of names that was given along with Stephen as those who were raised up to wait on tables, the deacons. Philip was one of those men, the second of which, who was selected to wait on tables. He was identified for his reputation as a godly man. Philip was a deacon, and and here he goes out, and he plays a key role in taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And just like Stephen, I'm so encouraged here that while certainly Philip likely had some element of experience that he maybe was able to bring to the table, we don't have an elaborate account like we do of Saul, of one who was educated under the best teachers of the law, but rather somebody who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, who had a relationship with him. And it should be an encouragement to all of us that these individuals who were selected to serve are no different than you or I. Stephen, who's the first martyr who draws attention to all this, who sparks the persecution that's going to drive the church outside of Jerusalem, And while the apostles, again, not trying to fault them, but while the apostles are remaining in Jerusalem, here Philip is going out responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to play a key role in the first open door to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem. To Samaria, no less. Samaria, the bottom feeders, the half-breeds, the people that were the result of the Assyrian invasion in 732 B.C., And they took out all the wealthy and all the elite. And it was just the peasants, if you will, that were left. And they intermarried with a pagan nation. And that's what remained in Samaria. They were seen as less. Certainly not the likely second stop for the gospel. We could have gone someplace better than Samaria, right? A people more worthy of the gospel. These were the very people, if you recall, that James and John, the sons of thunder, suggested be consumed with fire. You remember Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56? Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? I can look at that and I can think, that's probably me, (laughs) right? That would have probably been me. And the reality of it, you can look at that and, and with the knowledge that we have, go, oh, James, John, that was bad. That wasn't very spiritual. But here they are in Samaria, and Jesus is there, and they reject him. And they already hate Samaria. They already hate them. They see them as less than what they were. And so they think, oh, this is the perfect opportunity. We've got this power. We know that God is working. We've heard of what Elijah did. Let's give it a shot. Jesus, hey, 
How about we just call down fire and boom, we just take care of these people. They've got it coming. But Jesus turns and he rebukes them and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And from there they went on to another village. But this is so often our heart, is it not? When it comes to missions or outreach or evangelism, whether we want to recognize it or not. Maybe it's just going to be me who will be transparent and vulnerable here today. But I suspect that there's been times before when you've had some similar thoughts. Because you know what? It's easy to go and share the gospel at a youth rally, the big event, you know, winter jam or whatever the cool kids are going to be. Well, yeah, let's go down there. That'll be awesome. Or at a summer camp, kids are there. They're, they're hungry to learn and know more. At a community Bible study. How about the local prison? How many of you are ready to go into the prison? How about outside the Oliver Gospel Mission downtown? Not just in the general area, I'm talking right outside, where you never know what you're going to get. How about in the Middle East? How about in a struggling African nation? If we're honest, we can see a people who have made their decisions, and we can feel justified in saying they've got to deal with the consequences. But God desires that all men should repent. And here, he is beginning to turn the gospel to the rest of the world, and Philip takes it to Samaria, a people part Jew and part Gentile. And that alone, hindsight being 2020, causes you to go, what a perfect bridge to the Gentiles. But they hated the Samaritans. We see again in Luke, and remember Luke being the author or the writer of the book of Acts, and, and so Luke has these perspectives as we go back to the gospel of Luke. Luke knows these things, and I have no doubt that as he's writing this down, the connections, he's just, it's just blowing his mind. And in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, we read, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. He didn't even want to say the Samaritan. He didn't want to say that word. He didn't want to mention that nation. And you know he left distressed and disturbed over his own perceived self-righteousness. And here he was cut to the heart with the fact that 
Who is my neighbor? Now, Christian, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Let me tell you, your neighbor is not the one you waved at yesterday when you were mowing the lawn. In the truest sense of the word, I suppose, by Webster's definition, yes, the person next door. But what Jesus addresses here with this lawyer who is self-righteous and prideful is that your neighbor is that very person whom you hate, whom you despise, whom you have convinced yourself is in a pit of their own making, and you needn't feel any guilt for not reaching out to them. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Because the reality is we may not sit here today thinking, oh, I have a hatred for all sorts of people. But if you really allow the Lord to search your heart to see where you lack compassion, I can all but guarantee that he'll show you. You know, I am notorious for never giving money to homeless people. I'm just going to be honest with you. And it's not because I'm just, no, I'm never going to do that. But what I've convinced myself of in my mind and in my heart is that they're going to use that money for something that they shouldn't use it for. It's not appropriate for me to just give them money. Hey, I should do something else, right? And so that's what I you know, tried to do, both in this community as well as in the community we came out of in Kalamazoo. I was very much connected with some of the nonprofits and the organizations in town, the gospel mission that was there, the, the soup kitchen and everything else, so that if somebody would come and ask me, I could ask them a series of questions. Have you done this? Have you called this person? Have you gone here? Have you done that? And I could feel then better about the fact that, oh, I'm directing them to the right resources. In fact, almost prideful about that. That was pretty effective. That was really good. But do you know that in my study of this over the last week and in two separate conversations about these very topics, independent of my study, independent of any knowledge that this is where I was teaching, that the Lord also brought me face to face with three homeless individuals in our community who almost seemed like I had a a homing beacon on me, that it was just like out of all these people coming right to me. And I, I buckled. You know, what do you need? You know, I still attempted to try and minister the way that I had become accustomed to, but there was just something about, I mean, even yesterday, a guy comes up, a whole crowd of people, and he comes to me, and he says, I need $6. And I had my wallet out at the time, because I was pumping gas, and I'm thinking, you, you were just waiting. You're just waiting for this. But do you know what was in my wallet? Six dollars. Now he got six dollars and a card for Calvary Chapel. You know, where do you go to church? You've been to church or we're over here, you know. I don't say that in any way, shape, or form to exalt myself other than knowing that as I was dealing with this in my own heart, seeking the Lord as it relates to who is your neighbor, and could convince myself of a million different ways in which I serve my neighbor, knowing that there are still areas where I feel so justified by saying, No, I'm not going to help you. That here, boom, boom, boom. Lord gives me three opportunities to say, really? Really, Brennan? And we've got we've to pay attention to this. Who is your neighbor? God will give you practice, practical opportunities to deal with this in your own life if you let him. Who is your neighbor? And what a wonderful transition then to the Gentile church. As we draw it back then to the scripture here and, and begin to understand and see a little bit of probably what the, the apostles were going through as they were hearing of this. What a terrific way to reconcile these two people groups. And here Philip works many miracles and he preaches Jesus and people believe and, and the apostles were no doubt amazed as they began to hear the reports of what was happening in Samaria. When you hear of people getting saved, the gospel, moving into towns, 
moving into various areas, families, individuals that you thought, never, never that person, not those people. And maybe it wasn't that you didn't even want it, but you thought, oh, nope, they're beyond that point. But God gets a hold of your life. Maybe that's even some of you here today. Maybe you were the person that people thought, they're never going to be a Christian. But God got a hold of you. He got a hold of you. And your life was radically transformed. And you begin to shock other people. But it strengthens their faith. And this is such a great time as they see the gospel begin to spread into areas that they never would have even gone. And it brings reconciliation. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, is it not? People in our community, right here in our community, and certainly through communities throughout this country, they want equality, they want fairness, they want racial reconciliation, they want social justice. There's all these things that we want, yet we are so foolish to think that our design and our solutions will accomplish that, independent of Jesus Christ. It's foolish to think that man's design can accomplish these things, yet we continue to try and try and try. And just like last week, as we knelt in prayer for our nation, and this is my constant prayer as I pray for our country, is that we would be reminded that we cannot legislate revival. No social or political program can bring about revival in our country. Legislation simply gives us the open door for the church to move. If you want revival in this country, it's up to us. Empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes. Okay, but it's up to the church to do this. Brothers and sisters in the Lord who must truly understand who their neighbor is and be willing to step outside of their comfort zone and tell people about Jesus. We have to begin to do business with that and allow God to do that work in our own hearts. If there are areas where we know God wants to use us, God is calling us to, but we may be resisting. We've got to give that up. And so here in verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Simon was a sorcerer, a magi, a magician. When it says that they were amazed or astonished, it essentially means that they were bewitched. Many in the area were bewitched, caught up in, had kind of succumbed to this power that he demonstrated. And he did tricks, he did signs, he did wonders, but he did them through the power of Satan. So those in the area saw him as one who was great, and it was his own greatness that he sought to exalt through these acts. That was a primary distinctive, and always is, is who is the individual looking to bring glory to? If it's glory to themselves, then it's not of him. But many started to believe in Jesus Christ. And as Philip shared the gospel and performed many miracles, and the word says that Simon also believed. And now because of what we read here shortly, many have debated whether or not Simon was actually saved. Now, here's what I'll tell you is that we don't know for sure. 
And I, for one, am always reluctant to take a stance on someone's salvation. What we know is that it says that he believed. And it's the same word used for others who believe. There's nothing different there. There's no uh, different article that we see within the word that would suggest that it's some type of superficial belief. It says that he believed. And Philip obviously thought that he was genuine since he baptized him. Now that said, it could be that he was like those that we read of in John chapter 2 who witnessed Jesus' miracles. And it says that they believed on his name because of what they saw, because of the miracles. But he didn't stay with them. Essentially, he didn't invest in them because he knew that their belief was superficial. All they wanted was the magic. And so it could be, it absolutely could be that this is the case for Simon. But we don't know that for sure. And we don't know necessarily whether there was true indication of inward repentance. We see a glimpse of it here later on. An argument can be made for either case for Simon. But I would place the emphasis on this. Philip was less concerned uh, with determining whether or not Simon was truly converted and more concerned with sharing the gospel, more concerned with getting through to the the masses, the, the community of believers that was growing there. And Simon made the right profession of faith. And so from there, God knows the heart of man. When we see sin in someone's life, we should not ignore it. I'm not suggesting that. And we will see shortly here that Peter does address what he sees in Simon's life and heart because it is made known. But until that point, Philip trusted God to do the work in the man's heart. But we read here then in verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So here now word starts to make its way back to Jerusalem. The apostles start to hear about it. Samaria, the gospel has gone to Samaria and people are getting saved and there's revival in Samaria and that had to just be something that they wrestled with. Oh, praise God. Oh, yeah, you know? And I'm sure that they just rejoiced. I know, I'm sure that they did, but there had to have been a a range of emotions and and memories flooding their minds of all the times. And certainly for John of the time, when it's like, I hope nobody brings up the fact that I wanted to consume them with fire. If we could go ahead and just, just keep that on the down low. But guess who goes? Guess who the apostles send? It says that they were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent Peter and John to them. Was this God's divine intervention here? Or was this the rest of the apostles saying, John's going, John's got to have this one, right? We're going to send John down there. I hope that they had fun with each other in that way. In verse 15, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the word returns to the apostles who are here in Jerusalem, and that the gospel has gone to Samaria. And it says that the apostles determined that it was Peter and John who would go to confirm this and to lay hands on the people. These people whom he had suggested that be consumed with fire. And it had to just been going through his mind the whole way there. And, and aren't you thankful sometimes when, when you get to see that God didn't answer a foolish prayer of yours? Do we ever thank God for that? Lord, I'm an idiot. Sorry about that. I am sorry that I thought that this would have been a better plan or that that would have been a better plan because you see suddenly you have a picture and you go, oh man, I was way off. And this is the Christian life and I love it. I love that sometimes those who are so bold in their proclamations that this is what we're going to do and this is what's going to happen. And then God shows us our own foolishness and says, I don't know about that. And so the apostles are sent. And they're sent to verify, essentially, that what they're hearing is true. 
And they're going to lay hands on the Samaritans, for they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And now this causes a lot of trouble for people, this idea that they had been saved and baptized, yet wait, no Holy Spirit? What's going on here? How did that happen? How can someone profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be baptized, but not have the Holy Spirit? Well, this is where people get hung up. And so what's going on here? Well, first of all, remember that when we're reading in Acts, it's a history of the early church, and it's also a time of transition. Through Acts 10, we begin to see the door of the gospel opened to the ends of the earth, being opened from Jerusalem and into Samaria and then to the Gentiles as a whole. And we read in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, the account of Jesus asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter, he rightly declares who Jesus is, and Jesus says, blessed are you, on this rock will my church be built. And he states that to Peter are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that God is very intentional at this point in requiring the apostles' involvement in this stage of the game, not only for their faith and not only for them to see and understand, but for all to see that God was opening the doors for the gospel to go forth. And Peter's involvement there was important in that regard. It brought reconciliation, no doubt, between them and the Samaritans. It allowed them to rebuild and to establish that relationship by ensuring their involvement. But we will see as we go into chapter 10 and beyond that this isn't always required. And so what is often the case is people want to look at various things and they want to look at this specifically to gather their support for apostolic authority and that that should still exist today because we see here that when something's happening, Peter's got to go in and he's got to lay hands on. And they also want to say that, well, you know, in order to receive the Holy Spirit, you got to have an apostle come and lay hands on you and this and that. And the reality is, this is just one example. And it's for a very particular and intentional reason, but we don't see that consistently happening throughout the book of Acts. So we can't just take this and say, oh, well, that's how everything's supposed to be done. But I do believe that God was intentional in involving them. And furthermore, people want to exalt because of these passages, Peter in particular, who says, my church will be built upon this rock. That Well, that gives example right there for the fact that Peter, he's the guy. And while, yes, he was a leader, look at what was decided as he went to Samaria. It says that the apostles determined that Peter and John would go. If Peter were so much the leader, if he was the true rock that everything within the church rested upon, then don't you think Peter would have said, well, I'm going to go, or I'm going to send you, or I'm going to send you, not the apostles as a whole. So I digress a little bit there, but I think it's important for us to recognize those pieces here within the Scripture. But as it relates to the Holy Spirit, this component here, as we have continued to get a ton of education as it relates to the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts, when people are concerned with, when they wonder why they did not yet have the Holy Spirit, I think that they're looking at it the wrong way. Aside from Peter and John's intentional involvement, those who do not believe in the empowering of the Spirit subsequent to salvation in the life of the believer, then this does become an issue. For those who get only one aspect of the Holy Spirit, then to think that the Spirit was not present when one confesses Christ and is baptized, well, that would be a problem. That would be an issue that we'd have to wrestle with and figure out how exactly did that happen. But we believe, and and this is further evidence, that the believer receives the indwelling of the Spirit unto salvation, and that there is a second, subsequent empowering of the Holy Spirit that comes upon the believer to give them strength, power, and an equipping to better serve him. I love that this is here because it reinforces this principle. 
Because now there's no conflict. There's no issue with the fact that the apostles are going in and laying on hands so that they can receive power. Because, yes, they've already got the indwelling of the Spirit. They're saved. They've been baptized. But the apostles get to come in and be a part of laying hands on them, and they get to receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit upon them. And that's a big distinction in the verbiage here is that it's upon them. Just like we see at the beginning of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And after that, that there's this Holy Spirit that comes upon a believer. And that the apostles get to play a role in this, at least in this time, but that doesn't continue through the book of Acts. And so here's the important piece about this, that those who are living and operating without the power of the Holy Spirit are missing out on so much of what God has for us in this Christian walk. As we consider this very work, stepping outside of your comfort zone, ministering to your neighbor, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I've already mentioned, is it necessary for the laying on of hands for one to receive the Holy Spirit? No, I don't believe so. Can it still be done that way? Yes, I absolutely believe so. It can be however God decides to work. You know, there can be uh, amazing worship services and teaching of the Word, and at the end, you know, a, a call is given for individuals who want to receive the, the empowering of the Holy Spirit upon them. And they can come up and pastors can lay hands on them, and great and awesome things can happen. But it doesn't always happen that way. And we see a number of different examples throughout the Word of how this happens. We need to be cautious that we don't just hone in on one and say, this is the way that it's always to be done. We've got to look at the entirety of the Scripture to evaluate that. The more important thing, though, is that you have it. Jesus said, power will come upon you and you will be witnesses to me. Do you have that power today? What we'll see here through the end of the chapter is that Simon, he sees, and this is further evidence that it wasn't, and I don't mean to use just in this way, but it wasn't just the indwelling of the Spirit that was happening to this time, because Simon observes something. Simon sees power coming upon him, and Simon says, I want that. Now, the way he goes about trying to get it is wrong. And that's where Peter rebukes him. And so we'll pick up there next week in the rebuke that Peter has for Simon and the fact that it was an issue in his heart. And from there, we'll see the gospel go to Ethiopia. It's incredible. This point, as we see God opening up doors and we see his word going forth, what a calling for Philip to first go to Samaria that place where no one else wants to go. He's no doubt thinking, we talked about it, you know about it. There's great things happening here. And then what happens next is he goes to the Ethiopian man. It's not just, oh, hey, there's this Ethiopian coming by, Philip, and I want you to go talk to him. No, before Philip knows anything about what's to happen, God says to Philip, I want you to head south and I want you to go in the desert. Revival's happening in Samaria. All these wonderful things are happening. The apostles' hearts are being transformed as well. And God says, Philip, go to the desert. And that's it. Well, that stinks. I don't want to go. I don't want to go to the desert. I want to stay here. This is awesome. I want to be a part of this. God, I don't want to go to the desert. That's me. Philip says, okay. And he gets up and he goes. But what happens there is unbelievable. I just want to go. I want to talk about this. I want to keep going. Because he runs into this Ethiopian man, and the guy's in his carriage, and he shares with him. And he shares with him from Isaiah, by the way. He doesn't have the New Testament. He shares with him about Jesus from the Old Testament. Okay? So anybody who wants to say Jesus is in the Old Testament, you're wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. Okay? He's there. And he shares this with him. And this man gets saved, and he wants to be baptized. And he's got so much joy, and he goes back to Ethiopia. And you know what? 
Pretty soon here in August, we're going to have a meeting for our mission trip to Ethiopia. And you know when we go to Ethiopia, that we're going to go and we're going to spend time with Christians. And we're going to see the church that has been in Ethiopia for hundreds of years. Do you get that? Do you get that what's happening here right now has produced fruit for hundreds of years after this time? And we get to be a part of this still today. If you think that this is just history, that this is just simply history that we learn from, then you're wrong. You're missing the point because the reality is, is we can be just like this. At CCNE, our mission is to make disciples of Christ. But to do so requires that we be surrendered, trusting and leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Continuing in the vein of Stephen, Philip was not an apostle, but a deacon raised up who, who serves and who becomes an evangelist. He wasn't necessarily trained or skilled in how to preach the word, but he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he talked about Jesus wherever he went. From witnessing and outreach to missions opportunities, it's our intent to provide more avenues for you to actively live out your faith in this way. For the church to be turned inside out. It is great for us to be here on Sunday morning. It is great for us to be here on Wednesday night. It is great for us to do VBS. But that needs to be the war room, if you will, that prepares us to go out into the community for the church to be turned inside out. On Wednesday night, we talked about right after the rapture, what starts to unfold. That first seal brings in the Antichrist, and then war comes to the earth as the second seal is opened. Why do those things happen so quickly? Because the preservative, the salt and the light is no longer in the world. But right now we're here. Right now we're here, and we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing with it? Sandhills, outreach, Sunday school. Listen, Sunday school. Okay, yes, that's within the walls of this church. But there are kids over there right now whose futures and their walk with the Lord is certainly not guaranteed. They need individuals who are going to pour into them to share Jesus with them, to be an example to them so that this can continue, so that this generation can continue. Where is it that God wants you to go? What is it that God wants you to do? Where is he stirring your heart? What is he doing within you? Will you step out of your comfort zone and pursue him? Will you pursue that calling that God has placed on your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks once again for this day that you've blessed us with. Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you thanks. I pray here this morning that we would be so in awe of what you have done for us. Not just within our own lives, that would be enough. But to recognize that since the very beginning, you've been carrying out your plan and your purpose. That as you bring persecution into the church and as you stir the hearts of the people to move and to go, that we're beneficiaries of that. And that we stand here today, first and foremost, because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His blood that was shed, His body that was broken. The fact that we have the promise of eternal life today is foundationally in Him. Yet, Lord, that wasn't enough. You just wanted to continue to bless. You continue to bless and to provide and to give open doors to use us to use us to further your kingdom. What a blessing, what a privilege. So Lord, I pray for each of these here this morning that you'd continue to stir their hearts. Mine as well, Lord. Work within us. Stir our hearts to more. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that wants to hold back, that needs to just be able to, to let go, to give you full reign in their lives, that they would do just that. And that if we're unwilling, Lord, then bring the trials, bring the tribulation, bring the things necessary to make us uncomfortable so that we'd move and we'd go so that we could fully understand 
and lay hold of that which you have for us, to be used by you. May this body at Calvary Chapel, Lord, be a body that is used in a mighty way for the sake of the kingdom and to bring glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you, Lord, bless them and keep them. Go before us, Lord, we pray. And should you tarry in your return, bring us back together safely midweek, Lord, that we could continue in our fellowship and in our study of the Word. And we ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.